One of the most curious and far-reaching accidents of aeronautical history is to be found in the spread of jet propulsion, both pure jets and propeller jets. For the whole of the Western world's jet engine industry derives direct from Great Britain. It is the rise of jet propulsion that has dominated and transformed the whole world of aviation since the war. In this programme, you will first hear Mr A. Lombard, the Managing Director of the Aero Engine Division of Rolls-Royce. Next comes Raymond Baxter talking to Sir George Edwards, one of Britain's outstanding aircraft designers, who created the turboprop Vickers Viscount, one of the most successful civil aeroplanes in the world. Lastly, what about the men whose job it is to take the new generation of aircraft up into the air for the very first time? They are the all-important test pilots. And you'll hear Group Captain John Cunningham, whose life has been so much bound up with the development of the de Havilland Comet. But to start the story, here in the studio is Mr Lombard to talk about the gas turbine. In 1945, my firm, Rolls-Royce alone, have acquired 14 million hours of engine experience in flight. Nearly half of this has been in airline operation. Engines to our design have been manufactured in the USA, Canada, South America, Russia, France, Australia, Sweden, Belgium and China. The Avon straight jet engine of that time has been progressively developed into a more efficient engine by operating at a higher pressure ratio and with more efficient turbines. It is today operating in the comet daily across the Atlantic. John Cunningham, whom you will hear later in this program, has made a significant contribution to the flight development of the Avon in various marks of the comet, particularly under icing conditions and also in tropical trials. The Dart of 1945 one of the first propeller turbine engines was designed for 1,000 shaft horsepower for the Vickers Viscount and is today operating up to 2,100 horsepower and with some versions having an overhaul life of 2,200 hours. In the dart, as in all propeller turbines, the air after being compressed is first expanded in volume at constant pressure by burning fuel, usually kerosene. These gases then pass through a series of turbines which drive the compressors and the propeller. For every three horsepower developed by these turbines, two are required to drive the compressor and the remaining one horsepower is available for the propeller. In 1953, studies led us to appreciate the importance of extremely high pressure ratio, high turbine inlet temperatures, and increased operating flexibility. And out of these studies came the Tyne propeller turbine engine. The Tyne employs two separate axial compressors, giving a pressure in the combustion zone equal to 13 times atmospheric pressure. By means of internal air cooling of each turbine blade, it is permissible to raise the gas temperature at the inlet to the turbine, which produces both increased power as well as efficiency. A graphic picture of this advance can be gained by the fact that the Tyne produces two and a half times the power of the dart 
in approximately the same engine volume and at 30% lower fuel consumption for each horsepower. At typical cruise conditions, the fuel consumption is as good as that of the best compounded piston engine. The two separate compressor systems with their separate turbines permit a great operating flexibility in allowing a wide range of propeller speeds at a given power setting, the high propeller speed being advantageous to produce a high thrust at takeoff conditions, while a lower propeller speed permits a high propeller efficiency and low noise level during normal flight. This is the engine which is flying in the Vanguard, and at this point, the story can best be taken up by Sir George Edwards in conversation with Raymond Baxter. Sir George, as the man who has fought harder and longer to bring the turboprop into its leading position uh, than anybody else, what first got you turboprop-minded? In 1949 in New York, I read a paper on turbine engine transports in which I summarized the position as being one in which short-range operation in the future would be with propeller turbines and long-range operation would be with pure jets. And I added that the piston engine travel to which people were accustomed at that time would in 10 years no longer be regarded as first-class travel, but that the power plant at that time would be the turbine engine. And now that was based to an extent on the experience that we'd had since 1945 in which when looking round for a replacement for the DC-3s and the Vikings which we had built, we decided that if we could get a four-engine aeroplane uh, instead of what had traditionally been the twin-engine um, conception for the short-range operation, we'd made a big stride forward. There were propeller turbines available at that time that were light enough and giving enough power to let us put four engines where there had always been two. And in 1945, that begun it. The traditional smoothness of the turbine engine, because it all goes round and round and there are no bits going up and down, as with a piston engine, led us to believe that both airframe and passengers would enjoy it which has subsequently been confirmed. And also, as it was a short-range operation, we weren't confronted with the need, as with a pure jet, a, a turbine engine without a propeller, we weren't confronted with the need to fly high in order to get something like a comparable economy out of the power plant that we were at that time getting with piston engines. There was the big background of experience on piston engines and there was virtually none on turbine engines. And it did point to the choice of engine being the one most likely to be a reliable unit. And that led us towards the centrifugal compressor type of engine, which is the basis of the Rolls-Royce Dart. All right, then, the basic case for, for the turboprop, as you stated, Sir George, economy, smoothness, smoothness, and these... Uh, characteristics which are ideal for short-haul operation. Would you care to amplify those characteristics a little? Well, you see, on a short-haul, the average speed is bound to be less than on a long-haul 
Because so much of the time is spent climbing and descending, traffic control restrictions will probably keep the altitude down, which means that the speed is going to be kept down. And a propeller is much more efficient at lower speeds than a pure jet. Mm -hmm. Now, there is an additional advantage, and that is that on most short hauls, the airfields um, are short as well, and a propeller is a better device for getting a heavily loaded aeroplane out of a small airfield than, than a pure jet. Uh -huh. Nevertheless, uh, you will agree that there is a strong case for the pure jet for the long-range operation. Yes, I've always felt that, and the recent trip that I made to America was actually in a comet crossing the Atlantic, and that confirmed my view that this is really the long-range means of transport. But in any case, John Cunningham will be able to tell you more about that aeroplane than I can. John Cunningham. The phoenix is a bird of gorgeous plumage with a sweet voice. It is unique of its kind and is reputed to have risen out of the ashes of its forefathers. Now these words are remarkably true of the Comet 4 jet airliner, which is now in service all over the world. The Havilands decided to build the Comet shortly after the end of the 1939-45 war, when it was quite clear that if Britain was to compete in the post-war world of civil airliners, we had to take advantage of the remarkable developments in jet engines made during the war. So, in the autumn of 1946, when I was appointed chief test pilot to the Havilands, I first came into contact with the forerunner of today's Comet 4. The full story of the development of this pioneering effort is already well known, but, like all worthwhile achievements, it has not been easy. It was in July 1949 that I had the job of making the maiden flight of the Comet 1. And after a great deal of hard but fascinating work, the Comet started in passenger-carrying service with BOAC in May 1952. Now, in March 1954, the Comet 1 was grounded after a second catastrophic failure of the aircraft in flight, and the future looked extremely grim. But the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, were eventually able to prove beyond any shadow of doubt what had caused the failures and pinpointed a weakness in the design of the highly stressed pressure cabin. Now, a much more powerful comet with about twice the thrust, twice the range, and twice the load-carrying capacity of the Comet 1 appeared in 1954 in the form of the Comet 3. And it is this aeroplane which has been used as a prototype for today's Comet 4. Now let me give you an idea of what a flight in this aeroplane is like. As the engines start, there is a slight hum but no vibration. After taxing to the end of the runway, there is no time wasted before the aeroplane is lined up and takes off. Because of its enormous reserve of power, over 42,000 pounds of thrust, the tremendous acceleration and rapid takeoff will probably surprise you. Having passed the far end of the airfield at a few hundred feet up, you start climbing at about two to 3,000 feet a minute up to 20,000 feet height. <laughs> 
followed by a slower climb to your cruising height of approximately 35,000 feet. That is nearly seven miles high and about 25 minutes after takeoff. The major impression is one of being motionless with very little other than the major coastlines or continents to show you your speed over the ground. Then, when about 180 miles distance from your landing point, two of the four engines are throttled down and a slow descent is started, enabling you to finish your approach in a convenient position to join the airfield circuit and land quite comparatively slowly on whatever runway may be in use. Rather to your surprise, you will have traveled over possibly thousands of miles at an average cruising speed of about 500 miles an hour. Perhaps my own most satisfying flight was one made in September 1958, when I took off sunrise from Hong Kong in the first Comet 4 and flew to Hatfield near London with one hour spent on the ground refueling at both Bombay and Cairo, landing at Hatfield some 18 hours later, but still looking at the same sun which had about one and a half hours more to shine before it sank below the horizon. Now today, we at Hatfield can look back on the exciting period in the progress of air transport, a period that has left us in no doubt of the difficulties to be encountered in pioneering any new form of air transport and very much wiser as a team in facing the problems of the future. <laughs>